Good afternoon, everybody. Eddie Webb. We are here at the New Media Lab at Mesa Community College. Today, our guest is the Director for Foundations for Student Success, Melissa Carpenter. Hi, Melissa. Good afternoon, Eddie. Good to see you. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah. Cool. Nice to have you on the show. Student success, what could be more important than that? Hey, tell us a little bit about your academic background. So I attended Brigham Young University for my undergraduate degree. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I started out, so I changed my major two or three times. And after my first year, came back home, talked to my parents. They were both English majors, and I decided I'll major in English. So I studied that for four years, also received a minor in journalism. And that kind of launched me into my first career as a journalist. And then I, when I was 25, I went to Arizona State University and I did their comparative literature program. So kind of continuing to pursue my passion in literature. And I was also able to blend my interests with uh, the Latinx community. So I studied Spanish and English and wrote my master's thesis about uh, Latin American women who were guerrilla fighters in civil wars in both El Salvador and Argentina. So that was a great ex learning experience. And that was 20 years ago. And uh, I am currently pursuing a doctorate of education at the University of Southern California. Oh, wow. That's amazing. USC? USC. Wow. A Trojan. Yes. That's... My grandfather went to medical school there oh. about 80 years ago. Wow. That's incredible. That's uh, one of the finest schools in the world, USC. It's been a great experience so far. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a, a real good friend that just started film school over there. Young guy, really super, super talented. Yeah. I want to know more about this journalism experience you had. What'd you cover? I actually ended up being an editor at the East Valley Tribune. So I finished my bachelor's degree, moved back home to Arizona and said, I have an English degree, so I need to find a practical job. And I was really interested in journalism. And so that was my first job. And I did that for about 14 months, loved it, uh, worked the second shift. So start times, you know, 4.35 p.m., working until 1 or 2 a.m. And we were able to cover a lot of interesting stories during my short tenure there, including we had Princess Diana's death. We had Mother Teresa's death, mm. um, you know, all in one summer. So there were a lot of stories um, that we were able to cover that are memorable from that time period back in the 90s. Something happened when Mother Teresa passed away. There was another big event that got, kind of overshadowed her. It was what happened well, is her funeral was the same, like around the same time as Princess Diana's death. I oh, think that's how that worked. Okay. And so, unfortunately, I feel like it overshadowed the news coverage right. to honor the legacy of Mother Teresa and the work that she had done. This newer incident happened, and the timing was kind of off, and it, I think it was a disservice to Mother Teresa, but how do you time the news that way, right? Right. Yeah, I, that's why I remember that, because I remember how unfortunate, I mean, both of those deaths were, but the fact that her... You know, but then from what I know about her, it's also kind of fitting, you know, that she would, the humility that 
that she's shown. I remember reading a story that she was given some big award, some lifetime achievement award or whatever. They drove her down, and when she was walking into the uh, the whatever it was convention center or uh, auditorium to uh, get the award, she ended up grabbing some homeless folks and putting them back in the car that she came in and left and never went in and accepted the award. Classic. <laughs> she just, when she got there, she just, you know, went about her thing. And I love that quote that is attributed to her about, it for her it wasn't about, if if you're a Catholic, be a good Catholic. But if you're a, a Muslim, be a good Muslim. If you're a Hindu, be a good Hindu, you know. That whatever our faiths are, let's just be the best at those things, you know? And I've always found that very inspirational. So BYU, ASU, USC, how'd you find your way to MCC? I had an opportunity to return back to the East Valley Tribune, but when I was working on my master's degree, I decided I'd like to work in education for a while and see how that went. So when I Finished my master's degree in May of 2001, so 20 years ago. I made my way over to the L.A. building, and I met Doyle Burke and wanted a job as an adjunct faculty member. Sat down, and he was able to interview me, and that started my journey as an adjunct faculty member in the English department. He was only around for about another semester before he retired. Hmm. So I think I taught under three different department chairs, and that was teaching composition and developmental English, which I didn't teach developmental English until 2009, but I really enjoyed that when I found it, when that opportunity was given to me. I just found that it matched some of my desires to help students who maybe didn't get a fair shake, you know, in their prior education, and it it was a joy to do that. So that lasted for about 10 years that I was an adjunct faculty at MCC, and I also worked for Mesa Public Schools in the adult education program. I taught English language learners and GED students, so they were all adults between the ages of 16 and 64. A lot of Latinx students, but also international students from all over the place, France, China, etc. So that was a joy, and it was very nearby, so it was kind of Nice to see the community members participating in their lifelong learning and then also students at MCC pursuing credentials and continuing their education. Oh. Doyle Burke, Danella, and Jeff. Correct. Is that right? Do Those that were right? the three chairs. You are, you are absolutely correct. Uh, Doyle actually called me up. I had a nice little corner office up at UC Davis, and he called me up and said, Hey, come down here and interview for this job. And, it it rained every day for like two months, and I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to do that. And, uh, you know, 22 years later, here we sit. Do you miss the rain? Um, no, uh, but I enjoy the, mon- the monsoons or whatever they are. I enjoy the rain here in Arizona. So now you are the director of Foundations for Student Success. Uh, what is the role of foundations for student success? What is your program? So our program started as a federal Title III grant, 
and the focus was on our developmental education programs and how we were going to serve students in the English, math, and reading programs. A lot of that work was centered on faculty, so there was professional development. There were some student tools that we were able to roll out to hundreds, if even not, not even thousands of students as part of the grant work. So using Alex as a learning tool in the math program for over 2,000 students, we were able to create student success strategy workshops and a series for students so that say a math instructor didn't have time to cover time management or note-taking skills in their class because of how many competencies they needed to cover in that 16-week semester, we were able to do some of that outside of class as a co-curricular activity. And so we were able to provide those services to the students through the federal funding for five years. Now we're in a phase of being institutionalized. So I'm proud to say that it is almost five years post-grant and it's an honor to the institution that they took that commitment very seriously to not just let this go away, but to be able to provide those services to students beyond the life of that grant. And I think it's definitely changed what we were doing five years ago, 10 years ago, because the grant told us we had to do it that way to the freedom that we have now to work with other initiatives at the college. That's great. That's our uh, second question here. How has the work evolved over the years? I mentioned there was a lot of faculty professional development that was valuable that we provided through the grant. Many faculty received up to 80 hours of professional development. But one of the things that we've been able to do post-grant is really focus on some direct-to-student services and programs that were not part of that grant charge and let the Center for Teaching and Learning work a little bit more on the professional development sphere, partnering with them to make sure that that professional development is still available, but spending more time with students. Our students have a lot of needs, and it's a huge asset that the college has programs available to students to help them on their journey, and that's part of what our team has been trying to do over the last five years as we figure out what is our new mission beyond the grant. And you've been beyond the grant for five years? Exactly. The grant ended September 30th, 2016. So we're, we're right about there. Right. So now that we have, we have a couple new grants in our bank, how has the HSI grant being tied into your work? Great question. Well, we've worked with a lot of Latinx students over the last five years. We started a first-year experience program in 2018, and so we're now in our fourth year, and approximately 71% of the students that have joined our program identify as Hispanic. So we've really worked with that community. These are younger students who recently graduated from Mesa Public Schools, so recent high school graduates, and helping them with their transition into college. Another new thing that we created with the Foundation's Action Team were the boot camps. So you may have heard about math boot camps or writing boot camps. And so now we're starting to tie those programs together with the initiatives through Send Us, the HSI grant that we have. And we were able to hire through Send Us a boot camp coordinator. So that position works under the umbrella of Foundations for Student Success, but is funded through Title V. 
and is really working to expand access to boot camps. Boot camps are preparing students for coursework, giving them interest, knowledge, experiences that will help them before they start classes that are part of their program of study, as well as for some students, it might help them with their placement if they have to do a placement assessment. So we're really trying to look at how do we continue to serve all populations of students, including the Latinx population at Mesa, which I think is around 31%. So that's really helped elevate our work by providing more personnel and resources. And so we were able to offer this summer computer science boot camps, physical science boot camps, chemistry. We had calculus. So we're also, we're not just hitting, you know, some of our introductory mathematics mathematic classes, but also having programs for continuing students so that they can prepare for calculus. So I think it's a huge asset to the college to have these additional resources and do the sense making of how that works to forward our mission about diversity, equity, inclusion, guided pathways, and how it all fits together. That's wonderful. We should um, have a meeting sometime and introduce you to our summer institute that we do uh, with ACE, we do a new me- new media lab institute every summer, five weeks, and students come together and do a research documentary, and they learn all of the uh, writing, the research beforehand, the production part, and the post-production. And it's absolutely amazing. I would love to see that in action and maybe even talk about how we could get the first-year experience students involved in something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's what, uh, these are all A students, so they are in high school. Right, yeah. and, and FYE students are, are similar to A students, except for that they've graduated from high school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, we definitely need to talk about, yeah, that could be a Looking continuation. To yeah, I mean, the stuff they have put out, it's, it's amazing. They, uh, what was our last one we did was a native seed revitalization, and um then we did one on Native uh, identity on border towns. Uh, every year we pick a theme, and then we do five weeks of writing and production. And then the next five weeks, uh, the second half of summer, um, Keegan and I actually will go out and get other B-roll and start to edit, and then we meet up with them. And it's, it's been, it, To me, it's the highlight of my work here at Mesa. I love the A students, they come from my neighborhood. You know, they're so smart and their whole, you know, academic and their whole life is waiting for them. Exactly. It's, it's just There's amazing. so much potential and passion yeah. and you're just starting at the beginning of their journey to open up more opportunities for them. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing that how talented they are. So, um... How has COVID challenged your work, a COVID world? Like the faculty, we needed to move our services to a virtual environment. For our student success workshops, that ended up being a a good thing. I saw, you know, we saw attendance at the virtual workshops spike last year. So I think students lacked connection. And anytime there was an opportunity to maybe engage in a virtual workshop, there was that willingness to go and connect with other students and with staff. So changing to the virtual workshop environment just means finding a different way to deliver your content or your activities. 
I will say, though, for a lot of our students, it was tough. Um, for instance, students who maybe had access to a Chromebook in high school turned that in when they graduated, and now they found themselves in a space where they couldn't go to our library to use a computer. They were going to need to have something at home where they could use it for their classes, or they were going to share a device with their siblings who still were in high school. Having an appropriate study space. So all of a sudden you have families sharing their space during the day. They never had to all be at home at once. You had students who were 18, 19 providing childcare for younger siblings. So I remember one student who was babysitting his three and four-year-old siblings while trying to attend his virtual classes. So the struggle for students to be successful in their classes when there were a lot of other things that needed their attention. It was hard for the faculty and staff to know that there were some barriers that were going to be very challenging to overcome. So I think that changed a lot of the needs that our students had. And we had to adapt our program services, our requirements. And one of the things we pivoted to is to meet more one-on-one with students so that they could share here's what's going on with me, things that they might not feel comfortable sharing in a group. So it was a lot of one-on-one contact and being more intrusive. Some people would prefer to use the word proactive, but really being intentional about checking in with students and not giving up on them, knowing that they weren't in control of, of the environment or their circumstances in many cases. You know, those are very, very important lessons from from covid one i think we should get this herfa money and just give those computers away and yeah, let's just buy them and love that idea they're, they're, just give your, them a device yeah why not i mean come on it's, i know there are some ipads being distributed to the mesa college promise students i would just love to see a program where we could give a laptop kind of like a full service device to students that they would just have with them their entire time that they were a student just give it yeah, to them their or, first semester. And, or forever. They're, exactly. It's yours. Here you go. You they know? would just have that device for the rest yeah. of whatever their yeah. needs were. Yeah. yeah. I think that would be it. Let's and do I it, think, Eddie. Should uh, we write that proposal? Yeah, I think that. Why not? I mean, it's doable. It just seems reasonable. Like, here, you know, this is yours. Go change your life. You know, I, I think that's, that'd be great. Hey, um, what? What do you consider student success? That can be a very deep question. I'm always interested, obviously, in our student outcomes. I think we're trained to look at what are our graduation rates? What are our course success rates, right? I think sometimes, though, we need to break it down into smaller chunks, what student success looks like for students. I was just in a book club meeting for the HSI team, and there was some conversation about what do students view as success, right? And some of that is, what are the programs that they come to us for as a community college? Are we really using our career in technical education as an asset? You and I, Eddie, we teach in academic departments. We're used to a more traditional degree pathway, perhaps. But what are those certificates and career and technical degrees students can earn as part of their journey. Maybe they come back to us later. This is what 
Dean Voss was talking about, right? Maybe they use that as a stepping stone. They go into the workforce. They get that real-life experience. They might come back and try something else. So I think for, for me, student success is about how are we serving our community? Do students feel like they belong at MCC? Do they feel like they are empowered to learn what they came here to learn? Do they feel like it's going to lead to skills and knowledge that will help them get closer to their career goals or their personal goals? I do love the fact that we have a lot of choices at MCC. There's a lot of different programs that students can choose from. And I think if you know, if we want to consider what student success is from their perspective, it might be different than an administrator's perspective. So we're used to those numbers, right? And it's hard to say maybe for one student finishing the first year, that was the part of the pathway they would complete right now in their life. And it sets a stage for them. Maybe they're not going to finish that associate's degree in three years like Melissa Carpenter wants them to. But they might come back in four or five years ready to finish that up and having more a clearer goal as far as maybe they know which career direction they want. It's very much pressure for an 18-year-old to decide what they want to be when they grow up. I think some of us in our 40s and 50s still don't know what we want to be when we grow up. Yeah, yeah, it's the growing up part. (laughs) You know, you're talking my language, you know. I like to say to people, you're in my neighborhood because I think our work here at the New Media Lab is all student-facing. At the beginning, you know, it was all about, like, I've completely changed everything by listening to students, you know, and asking them, you know, let's consider what they think is success. We have the tiers of accountability, you know, if we were funded 70% off of tax dollars. So there's a legislative accountability that needs to be measured, right? So we have all of that part, but we have to integrate it always with the, you know, what does the student feel they're being successful? And the fact that you are considering, you know, that voice at the table, I think is critical to our, to our success. I'm kind of an old school guy. In other words, I like it when students call us, you know, sir or ma'am. I think there should be certain kinds of expectations of, of quality in the education. And I think students tend to be harder on themselves than, than we are many times, you know. I think um, having them at the table, I just, I just think benefits everybody, you know. As long as our standards are high, you know, we keep our standards high. And I, from my, that's another thing working with ACE that I found out. They want that. Students want to be challenged, you know, but they want it to be a fair playing field as well. If we ask them to do things, we as an institution have to provide them the tools they need to succeed, right? Yeah, kind of balancing that mantra of no student rises to low expectations with the concept of equity, meaning we're going to need to give each student what they need to be successful. Yeah. That's right. Always keeping that balance. You know, sometimes when I hear administration wanting to know why students don't complete or, you know, why they drop out or whatever, it really, sometimes it can be frustrating to me because teachers know, we know, we know our, we know exactly, we know the answer to every one of those questions. 
that data environment sometimes we leave. We, I, I've always told our presidents we have to humanize our data, you know, make sure that, we, that the system reflects people. Because it's people that make up our institutions. Not, not, it's not the system. It's the people. Yeah, I, I've often thought about, and I'm sure Dennis's area in the institutional effectiveness realm works on this because I know they have surveys that they right. offer, but really finding out why students need to leave or choose to leave, it can be hard to do because once they leave, they don't have to opt into communication, right? So how do we put a face on that for a student who chooses to leave the institution or has no other option at that time? What can we do? And I think my answer to that, Eddie, is what you just said. The faculty know why. So it's about building relationships with students. If a student feels that they have accountability relationship, it doesn't have to be about their schoolwork or their grades in their classes. If they feel like they're accountable to someone on campus because that person's invested in them as a human being, then they'll be more likely to share some of those personal reasons that are really hard to broadcast, right? You don't always want to have to tell people what's going on in your household or why you have to make a difficult decision. Yeah, that's exactly right. That they trust us and they respect us. I mean, almost to a person, I know why a student has left, you know, and sometimes it's just heartbreaking. I just uh, finished writing a piece talking about going from a teacher to an educator my transition from, you know, being a teacher and learning to be more flexible. I mean, I, I had students that were like, I, I can't keep coming to class because, you know, my dad lost his job and I've got to pick up more hours. And to finally, you know, with experience, you gain the confidence as an educator to say, you know, that's okay. We'll work this out. You know, let's, let's do a contract and you can complete the work you know, on your own timeline. And I think those are the small little things that we learn in, as, as educators that we can be more flexible to help our students complete. And a lot of times that's all they need, a little bit of support. I've definitely you know? seen a lot of faculty be more willing to negotiate with students how they complete coursework since the pandemic hit. And I believe that for a while those practices will continue and I think that would be a good thing for students. I also think there's things institutionally we should continue to explore, like the eight-week class model. So I'm not saying it would solve all problems, but for the students who get into, you know, hey, something's happening with family, if they can get into an eight-week class, they might be toward the end of that class when something happens, and they might be able to wrap up that term, that mini-term, and get a couple of eight-week classes completed, whereas in that 16-week block, it's very much based on a traditional college student. They're going to go to school in the fall and spring. They're going to have these 16 weeks to be fully dedicated to their studies. That's not the student that we necessarily serve at the community college anymore. And so it makes me wonder, should we be doing more of these eight-week classes, or should we have that flex, high-flex model that Craig Jacobson and some of the other people in the English department are really interested in that allows for students to have different modalities of participation and it's a little bit more flexible in, in how they complete their coursework, like you said, Eddie. And there's a balance, right? Because there's, yeah. 
there are expectations and there is work that has to be produced. Well, the traditional model is really based off of farming. Right. You know, having our summers available. Yeah. People had to go home and plant and had to harvest and, you know, we don't do that. We're not, we don't, we're not all living on farms anymore. Although Mesa Community College is actually on a farm, it used to be a farm, but yeah, yeah, we can, there's plenty of models, you know, the UC system in California has been on 10 week quarters for forever. Works really great. There's a lot of layers of restructuring. So you don't burn out faculty that are having to start over every eight to 10 weeks. And, but there's plenty of models for us to follow. And a lot of us have been talking about that kind of stuff for a long time. Do you have any particular story you'd like to share with us around a student success? Absolutely. There's one young woman I can think of that was in our first year experience program. She was the first cohort. Those were our guinea pigs, right? Because we didn't know what we were doing yet. And they were really gracious with us to let us learn with them what this should look like and how it should be. I just bumped into a young man yesterday and he was saying how it's so different now, the program, how it's evolved. But this particular young lady went to Mesa High School and she really discovered when she came to the first year experience, did the summer, summer bridge program, experienced that college success. And she really discovered her passion for education. She became a student ambassador, so we gave the students an opportunity to apply for a leadership role for the second year. She recruited her brother into the program the next year. She actually took English 102 in the new media lab, and she, I think it was Spark program. She was so excited about that that she offered to teach the other first-year experienced students about that program, like she wanted to integrate it into our program. We also do several, like I said, student success workshops, and we cover career exploration, choosing a major, and university transfer. And I remember sitting in the workshop. I was not presenting. It was one of my employees. And we talked about the Western University Exchange, the WUI. And there were a couple of people in that presentation where the light bulbs just went off. They'd never thought about attending college out of state. That was her light bulb moment of, I could actually go to college out of state. I don't need to stay in Arizona. I could have this experience. So she knocked out her associate's degree in two years. And who does that anymore, Eddie? There's not a lot of our students that make it through in two years. She finished in two years, and then she transferred to the University of New Mexico. And she actually went there in person, you know, during the pandemic, because that was around fall of 2020. So she moved to New Mexico. And so to me, that's that's one of those that's one of those things that keeps you going to see the excitement that she had to reach her goal that she was able to maintain her focus and then do the next step but along the way that she was able to try to share her enthusiasm with the incoming students and help them have the same recognition so students lives can change a lot in 12 months and the fact that that can happen at MCC is kind of why I get out of bed every day right it's just something that makes me really happy to think about how we're changing people's lives, like you mentioned earlier. Right? That's, I think that's why we're here. That's why we choose community colleges, uh, maybe knowing that we can make more of a difference here. Uh, I, could, I could definitely go to work at a university and work with traditional students that look like me and, and had the same opportunities and privileges I did 
And, you know, who knows if I'll ever do that. But I've been at MCC for about 20 years because I feel like there's, there's more of an impact that we can have. My father was a first-generation college student. And to be a second-generation college student is a big deal, right? It changes everything because you have a model. You have someone who's uh, shown you the way. And so I think, you know, being able to work with a lot of first-gen students at MCC, we have about 51, 52%. Uh, it's been an amazing ride because I truly believe it changes families for generations. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. Glad to hear we're kind of part of it. Yeah, yeah, we love Spark. So we always give our guests the opportunity for the last word. What's your vision for the future? I think it would be related to a lot of our strategic priorities. I hope that in the next five to 10 years, I want to be realistic. It takes time to make changes that all students feel welcome at MCC. I think that we've done a lot of work to get to a point where our Latinx and, you know, our African-American students, our Native American students feel like this is the place for them. That's not the MCC of 50 years ago. It's not the MCC my husband attended. Things have changed but we need to do more. We need to expect more of ourselves of employees. And I think as we continue to evolve as employees and as we hire new colleagues who share the same vision and values, I think we can make that happen. So, so that'd be the first, to really serve students in a way that, that works for them. And the second thing would be, I do believe in the Guided Pathways initiative. I think it's a great way to organize and structure some of our work. And so I really like to see a day where you know, all students, when they go through their first year, they're, they're discovering their passions, they're choosing programs of study. Doesn't mean that the program of study necessarily has to be aligned to their exact career title that they hope to achieve one day, but just that as they go through their journey at MCC, they're finding the classes that excite them where the learning is impactful to them as individuals and as community members. So I, I think that's kind of where I, I see us going as a college. And I feel like there's more com people committed to that now than there ever were before. So it gives me hope that we're going to make some incremental progress. And over time, we'll look back and we'll see, hey, this is how far we've come. And, and we'll be really you know, satisfied and heartened by, by that work. And I think our students are the ones who will let us know if we've done that well or not. Yeah. I agree. That's wonderful. And I think you're right. I think a lot more people are coming together. I think uh, working together and understand our, how important the collaboration is for all of us and how that benefits our students. We want Mesa to be a destination, but not a permanent place. You know, My first 10 years here, I was like, I would see students. I'm like, hey, man, you, like, you've been here as long as I've been here. You know, you're supposed to move on at some point and, you know, find that next, that next step in your life. But people, I think, I think there's a lot of young students that love Mesa so much. It becomes a home, a real safe place for them. And uh, that's always a good thing. Eddie Webb, we are here at the new media lab at Mesa Community College. Today, we have had Melissa Carpenter, the director of foundations for student success and we thank you for your time and sharing your insights with our community 
as they say in my dad's language, we'll see each other again. And remember, take care of each other out there. We are all we have. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. This was great, Eddie. Royalty-free audio, Grinoline Dreams, by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can find more of his work at incompetech.com. The Maricopa County Community College District, MCCCD, is an EEO-AA institution and an equal opportunity employer of protected veterans and individuals with disabilities. All qualified applicants will receive consideration for employment without regard to race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, age, or national origin. A lack of English language skills will not be a barrier to admission and participation in the career and technical education programs of the district. The Maricopa County Community College District does not discriminate on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, disability, or age in its programs or activities. For Title IX 504 concerns, call the following number to reach the appointed coordinator, 480-731-8499. For additional information, as well as the listing of all coordinators within the Maricopa College System, please visit maricopa.edu slash non-discrimination.